Amen. Lord, we are truly amazed by your grace. Lord, in the fact that you just continue to pour it out upon us. We thank you for your goodness and your patience and your kindness and your love. Lord, that love that you displayed that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And Lord, we know that your desire for us is to experience everything that you have for us in this life that you've given to us. Lord, that, that requires faith, requires sanctification, requires change in us, Lord. So we ask that as we open your word now, that your word would penetrate us, would penetrate our hearts. We know that your word is alive active. Lord, we desire to be changed by you today, molded more into your image. So have your way in us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Grab your Bibles. Open them to the book of Acts. How about those kids, huh? Is that awesome? That was amazing. And they did that a couple of times in New Jersey and Man, the fruit is still being seen there and I believe will be for a long time. Acts chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from under a seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service. Acts chapter 11. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at an encounter between Peter and a man named Cornelius Cornelius is a Roman, he's a Gentile, he's a centurion in the Roman army, and we've seen, again, as we've studied this the last couple of weeks, how the Lord was working in the heart of Cornelius and working in the heart of Peter. And we come to now, as we transition into chapter 11, and if you have been with us the last couple of weeks, you know, as I've said, this, in, this whole thing takes up a time where we're going to cover it over a course of three weeks. There's three tellings of the same story. And if you've missed the last couple of weeks, I would encourage you to go on to the website. There's our media link there and you can watch the last couple because there's some very important lessons in this. But we'll see in chapter 11 now as we continue again, Peter recounting the story of what has taken place. After spending a few days there in Caesarea, he returns to Jerusalem, and we see now in chapter 11, verse 1, now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So word gets back to Jerusalem before Peter gets there that Peter has gone to the house of Cornelius, a house of a Gentile, and he has shared the gospel with them, and the entire household gets saved along with all of his friends and all of the people that were there. Notice their reaction. When Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. 
But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa, and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he went, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he has given to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Peter returns back from this glorious event that takes place in Caesarea, and he's met with these Jewish believers. It tells us both, both brethren and apostles. So we don't know who's there, who's a part of it, but they come and they take issue with what took place. The problem is that God was working in a way that they weren't seeing. God was working in a way that they weren't understanding. God was working in a way that they weren't good with. They, they, he, was, he was working in a powerful way that this entire thing, that it's, an, it's a glorious story as we've seen. But they took issue with it. The grace of God in a package that they weren't ready for. The grace of God, the gift of God, packaged in such a way that they weren't, they weren't comfortable with. It was outside of their comfort zone. Look ahead real quickly. We're going to get there later, Lord willing, verse 23 today. A very similar thing takes place in Antioch. And the, the, when, when Barnabas gets there, notice he witnesses the grace of God, this massive coming to Jesus of all of these Gentiles. And look what it says. He witnessed the grace of God and he rejoiced. Guys, we have a tendency to give the enemy way too much credit. We see things around us. We see things happening around us. And we say, oh, that's the enemy. That's the enemy doing that. Guys, we have to understand something. The storms in our life are either caused by or allowed by the Lord. And he can stop them at any moment. Just as he sent his disciples out into the sea, out onto the Sea of Galilee, knowing that there was a storm coming. And he sent them out there for a reason to change them, to grow them, to teach them trust and faith. And so often when, when the grace of God comes to us and it's packaged in a way we're like, hey, I don't understand that. I'm not good with that. I take issue with that. Guys, we miss out on the blessing that's inside. 
We know the verse, Romans 8, 28, don't we? All, we could probably most of us recite it. We know God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purposes, right? We know that. We, we claim it. God works all things together for good. He goes on to say in the next verse that it's done for our growth so that we become more like Jesus, that we go through these things and he works them all together so that we become more like Jesus. And you know what he says later in, in verse 32, just a couple of verses later, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for, delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The same phrase. We know all things work together for good. So why wouldn't he freely give us all things? And guys, I say that because this, while this is a very specific example, guys, this can happen to all of us. We can all be susceptible to this. The grace of God as it comes to us, again, in a package that we're not good with, if we're not careful, we can be resentful instead of rejoicing. We can be protesting instead of praising. We can be whining instead of worshiping. We can be gossiping instead of glorying. And God is in the midst of it all saying, I'm trying to do something in you. I'm trying to do something and grow something in you. Again, contrasted to Barnabas' reaction that we'll see in verse 23. Praising God for what he's seeing. Guys, God doesn't owe us any explanation of why he does what he does. And I know this doesn't sit well with most of us, and even yours truly, he's not required to seek our input or approval beforehand. And Peter, he sees this, he's witnessed this, he's experienced this, and as he says this, and I love this, in verse 17, he puts himself out there, but as he puts himself out there, he's indirectly asking the question to them as well. He says, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And in that, putting them right in their face, and who are you to stand in God's way? for what he desires to do. And no doubt, they got, they got cut to the quick in that. God spoke to Peter. Peter was obedient. And though they did, took issue with it initially, once they, they took a step back, notice it says they quieted down and they glorified God. They got over their whining and they started worshiping. I love, too, the tenderness and kindness of God in this, in this story. Because, again, I point out, he didn't mention any names as to who they were. I like that about God. I like that, that there's not a billboard in surprise that said, Pastor Brett had a big old pity party on Thursday. <laughs> and he was feeling all sorry for himself. <laughs> now you all know, but it wasn't because God said. <laughs> he deals with us so gently and tenderly. <laughs> well, they're, they're glorying now, afterwards. It tells us in verse 19 now as we move on. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. 
Again, underscoring that the persecution that, again, looked at initially as, as probably a horrible thing, as it was, but God used that to spread his church. And they didn't go as they were spread out. They didn't go into hiding. They went out and started proclaiming the gospel. And we see here, as we're going to spend a little time today, in a city called Antioch. Now, in ancient times, there were 16 different cities named Antioch. This one is the big one. This one is the main one, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. At the time of, around this time, there were upwards of a half a million people that lived there. Huge city, the third largest city, as a matter of fact, in the Roman Empire at the time. A very pagan city. There's only about 25,000 Jewish people there at the time, and they had little impact on the, the society, little impact on the culture that was going on. There were gods that were worshipped, Roman gods, Greek gods, Syrian gods. One of the main temples there was the temple to Daphne, which was a horribly immoral worship of the goddess Daphne. It involved temple prostitution, and it was widely accepted and even promoted throughout the entire culture. That is where this is taking place. And we see here that, that the small band of Christians arrive. And notice what it says that they do. This is, I think this is so important because we see at the end of verse 21, a large number turn to the Lord. So when we see massive revival happening, maybe we ought to see what they, what they do. To, oh, let's see, they spoke to people. <laughs> speaking the word, speaking to the Greeks. That word speaking there in the Greek, is a, it's, a, it's a difficult translation. It means to talk to somebody. <laughs> That's all it is. It was, they weren't bringing some superior intellect. They were just engaging in conversation with people. And then it says they preached the Lord Jesus. They shared the gospel. They are in the midst of a culture full of immorality, full of licentiousness, full of sin, but also full of disillusionment. As the world around them was seeking all of these things, trying to find pleasure, trying to find happiness, trying to find whatever it is they're trying to find in all of these worldly things, they're coming up empty time and time again. And they simply said, well, we have the answer, and his name is Jesus. You see, the problem that we all carry and the reason that we can never find satisfaction and happiness outside of him is because we're all sinners, and we all know it. And we carry that shame and that guilt around with us. We know that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. No matter what somebody says, oh, I don't believe in God and all this stuff. Guys, they deep down inside know because God's made it evident to everybody. And they're carrying that guilt around. And there's only one way to get rid of it. And that's to trust in the completed work of Jesus. God himself who stepped off the throne, lived a, became one of us, lived a perfect sinless life, and then died in our place on the cross, paying the full penalty for our sin. If you trust in him... You give your life to him, you can have that guilt and that shame washed away. And when they hear that and they trust in that, all of a sudden, wow, the weight is lifted off. And they experience the joy and the peace and the happiness that they could never get anywhere else. It's, guys, it's that simple. And we can, we can mess it all up by trying to polish it all up and try to do things a different way than what it's clearly laid out. Notice what they didn't do. They didn't organize a picketing thing where they marched around the temple of Daphne holding up signs and saying, you know, all this kind of stuff. 
they didn't, they didn't campaign against what was going on. They campaigned for who they followed. Again, guys, the world needs to know who we're for, not what we're against. They need to know that we're for Jesus. They'll find out all of those other things. But again, as we've said, it's an, and it's an important thing to keep in your mind. Guys, we can't clean the fish before we catch them. And, and that's what's going on. They're, they're sharing this. And they're getting this. They're, the, Paul, when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he was speaking about when he would encounter others and try to start to tell them about the Thessalonican church. He says this, For they themselves report to, about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Guys, it's that simple. That's the gospel. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. That's the truth. And the truth sets people free. And that's what's taking place here. And the church is exploding. The hand of God is on them as they're faithfully sharing the gospel. A large number believe Verse 22, news about them reaches the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Man, there is, a, there is a system in place that gets news back to Jerusalem faster than Facebook, it looks like. I mean, it, this, there is a channel <laughs> because, man, nothing's going on. It doesn't get back to Jerusalem, but we see a different result this time. They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. We saw earlier in Acts, Barnabas' given name was Joseph, but he was such an encouragement to people, such an encouragement to the apostles. They called him the son of encouragement. That is Barnabas. That's what Barnabas means. So they send him now. And it tells us here in, in, that he's a godly man, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, a man of faith. They send him. It says, then when he arrived and witnessed, again, the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. The church continues to grow, exponentially growing. It says, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Barnabas gets there, and again, through the eyes of faith, he walks into this, this gathering of people and he sees a glorious thing. He does not see a room full of perfect people. He sees a room full of sinners saved by grace. And he rejoices. He rejoices. His heart leaps. He's so excited and he's praising God. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. And he encourages them. Interesting, the word that's used there, he encourages them, that, the Greek word parakleo, to come alongside, to encourage, to nurture, to, to do the work together. Come alongside, like holding your hand and, and encouraging. And it's an idea of a continual encouraging. Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, speaking using this same word there, he says that when we do this, we need to do it with great patience and instruction. 
encouraging others with great patience and instruction. Guys, this journey that we're on, this walk that we're on, this thing that we're doing together takes patience. It takes instruction. We need to continually exhort one another and encourage each other as we go. And notice how he does it and what he says. With resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. That's how we all need to encourage each other. With resolute heart. It's not an intellectual thing, guys. It's a heart thing. With our heart, remaining true to the Lord. That word that's, that's translated there, remain true, has the same root as to abide. And Jesus, using that word, said in John 15, 4 and 5, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can only accomplish so much. All right. So a few of you are watching on the screen. Okay. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Guys, we need to continually encourage one another to abide in Christ. To stay connected to Jesus. Because that's how it's all going to work. And that's how we're all going to navigate this together. And I love Barnabas as he does this and he's encouraging this. But notice also, he realizes that this is getting a little too big for him to handle on his own. So he goes over to Tarsus and he looks for Saul. That's where we left Saul off, remember? And we said it was about an eight-year period where the church kind of sent him away to Tarsus for a while. And Barnabas, no doubt, never forgot about Saul was probably continually praying for Saul and now realized, man, this is, this is in the Holy Spirit probably laying on his heart. Go get Saul. So he goes to Tarsus, and it says that he, he diligently was looking around. Again, they weren't texting each other, you know, hey, how you doing? You know, keeping up like that. Hey, oh, by the way, you know, they, he didn't have the go find me thing and boop, and he, you know, follows the navigator. He had to, he had to diligently seek out Saul. The only other time that word is used in the New Testament is also by Luke, who wrote Acts, writing the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 2, when it speaks of how Joseph and Mary were looking for Jesus. When they had gone there, he was 13, they were at Jerusalem, they're on their way back home, and after a couple of days outside of town, Mary says to Joseph, hey, where's Jesus? And Joseph said, I don't know, I thought you were watching him. And she's like, I haven't been watching him, I thought you were. The panic sets in. They check with all of the friends, all of the relatives. Nobody's seen Jesus. They hightail it back to Jerusalem, and it says they're diligently seeking for Jesus. You would be too if you lost the Messiah. So they're, they're like going crazy, and they find him at the temple. Same word used here. Diligently seeking for, finds him, and they both return, teaching the church, sharing the gospel, the church continuing, continuing to grow. And I love this. It says... They're first called Christians here. First called Christians in Antioch. Antioch, this, this cesspool of sin, will become the cradle of Christianity, quite frankly. That's what it was later called. The church, by the fourth century, estimates are the church grew to a size of over 100,000 people in Antioch. And we see it just getting its start here. 
first being called Christians there. And by the way, that wasn't a cute pet name they came up for, with each other. <laughs> they didn't say, you know, hey, let's call each other Christians. That would be cool. No, non-Christians. The world around them called them Christians. And Christian simply means Christ follower, one who follows Christ. Some have a say that they think it was derogatory as they were saying that. I have a tendency to believe it wasn't. It was just the way that they identified them. Those people follow Christ. But I want to ask this as I, as I was pondering on this myself. How did they know? Because they didn't have bumper stickers that said, you know, honk if you love Jesus, you know, or... They didn't, they didn't have, you know, not of this world shirts that they were wearing around. They didn't have crosses around their neck. How did they know? How did they know that they were Christians? How would your, how would your neighbor know that you're a Christian if you didn't have a bumper sticker on your car? Would they? How, how would your waitress at the restaurant that you go to know that you're a Christian if you didn't have a cross around your neck or wearing a Christian t-shirt? Would they? Jesus tells us that people will know us in a very specific way. He says, John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You remember the song, don't you? And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. I know, I can't sing, but I was, I, I, they'll know we're Christians by our love. That's what Jesus said. He, he, goes, he doesn't stop just there, though. He, he, he gives examples of how that is even laid out, how the world then, how they can identify us. He says, Matthew 5, 13 through 15, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does any, anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He doesn't say you will be. As a born-again believer, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And the way that it is, the structure that is there, he says, you alone are the salt of the earth. You alone are the light of the world. There is no plan B, guys. We're it. What an awesome privilege. But that's an incredible responsibility as well. The salt of the earth. The world defines that as, oh, you're a pretty, you're a pretty swell guy. That's not what Jesus meant. It's not what it meant then. Salt we understand the properties of salt. We understand the uses of salt back then. Even had greater uses than, to, than in our convenience. They didn't have refrigeration back then. So salt was used to keep something from rotting. You'd salt your fish. After you caught some fish and you had to take it to market or travel a distance, you'd, you'd cover it in salt to keep it from rotting. Do you realize that that's a role that we play as believers? Well, the world will understand what the, when they get what they wish, when all of us Christians go away, when the Lord raptures us out of here someday, the world's going to get a whole lot more rotten than it is now. Salt was an antiseptic. 
When something is septic, that means it's, it's rotting, it's, it's putrefying, it's a cut that is, if you don't take care of it, it's going to turn into gangrene. I mean, and an antiseptic kills that bacteria. Now, I don't know about you, but anybody ever put salt on a wound before? There's a reason they talk about that. What happens? It hurts. It stings. And guys, when, when we're applied that way, we have to understand that it's going to sting. And, and just like children, if you're going to put something on a cut that's going to sting, peroxide or whatever it is, we know that that's what's best and that's what's needed. But they're going to say, no, 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 I want something else. I don't want that. And the world's going to say, when we say the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, they're going to say, I'm not good with that. I want something else. We need to be aware of that. We need to be ready for that. But salt is also a seasoning, right? I mean, that's how we look at it the most. And, and you put salt on things to add flavor. But you don't put salt on something to add flavor to what it already tastes like. You don't put egg-flavored salt on your eggs. You put salt on your eggs to make them taste different, to add flavor to. Salt has its power as a seasoning because it is distinct from what it is that you're putting on. Guys, we need to be distinct. We can't reach the world by being like the world. We need to be different. And... And the world, quite honestly, wants us to be different. They're not going to tell you that, but deep down, again, the world wants us to be different. The world doesn't want a Christian version of what it already has because that's not working. The, the, the world, again, is deep down is tired of what doesn't work. And we need to be that difference. Guys, the, the Lord didn't come here to make good men better. Jesus came to make dead men alive. And again, the, the world doesn't want to just feel better. They're dead. They need life. One last thing about salt when it's on your food. What does it make? What, is it, what does it cause in us? It makes us thirsty, right? I mean, the, the movie industry is really brilliant. When you go to the movies and you get that, you know, six-gallon tub of popcorn for $2, and you're thinking, how do they make any money on this as you're pounding away? And then you have to go, oh, man, I'm thirsty, and you got to go buy that $25 soda. <laughs> it creates thirst. <laughs> and, guys, does our life make others thirsty? Does our life make the world around us say, I am thirsty? What is it about you? And then we can give them the only thing that will satisfy that thirst, and that's the living water. We're the salt of the earth. Jesus also said we're the light of the world. And he said himself, speaking of himself, that I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We receive that light from him. We don't generate the light. We reflect the light. But again, just as, just as when you're in a dark room and you turn on the lights, what's the reaction? It's the first reaction is kind of, mm, right? And we need to expect that again from the world. When we are salt and when we are light, it's going to cause a negative reaction time. And that's okay. 
That's okay. We can't, light is powerful because of its distinctness from darkness. If, it was, if light was trying to be dark, it wouldn't do a whole lot of good. I, I heard a story one time about Billy Graham, who was playing in a pro-am golf tournament. And I, want to, I, I know that if I'm playing golf, if I'm going to go out and I'm going to play golf and I'm going to play with a group of guys that I don't know, I know that by about the fourth or fifth hole, I'm going to ruin their day. <laughs> because they're going to say right around the fourth or fifth hole, what do you do for a living? And I'm going to say, oh, I'm a pastor. And they're going to be, oh, I am so sorry for what I said back on hole three when I missed that putt. And then the whole rest of the time, when they, oh, sorry, Reverend, you know, the rest of the time. And I'm going to ruin the rest of their golf round. But <laughs> Billy Graham one time was in a, in a pro-am, and he was playing when they had finished the round. The pro that he was playing with walked into the locker room and threw his clubs into the corner and was cussing and swearing up a storm. And one of his friends said, what's the matter with you? He said, I didn't need Billy Graham jamming Jesus down my throat for 18 holes. And so he grabbed his clubs and he went out to the driving range and he starts hitting some balls, hitting some balls. And the guy walks up to him and he says, so Billy kind of laid it on thick, huh? He turned around and he leaned on his driver and he says, you know what? He never said a word. (laughs) He was just light in a dark place. And we have to understand and expect that reaction. But guys, light has absolute authority over darkness. As, as a parent, as a grandparent, you know, when your child says, Daddy or Mommy, I'm scared of the dark. Isn't it awesome to be able to fix that? Just like, nothing to worry about, sweetheart. Light has absolute power. Again, though, the power is in the distinctiveness. The sun and the moon are a great representation of what we are to be. Jesus, the producer, like the sun... We're the moon. We're the reflector. If you go out on a clear night and you look up into the sky, no clouds in the sky, and you can't find the moon, what's the problem? The earth has gotten in the way, right? And the same is true with us. If we're not shining as we should be, guys, it's because the world's gotten in the way. Salt losing its saltiness. Sodium chloride can't lose lose its saltiness. That can't happen. Is Jesus contradicting himself? No. No. Figure of speech, losing saltiness. When you got up this morning, you didn't look out over and say, oh, look at that beautiful earth rotation. You said, look at that sunrise. Guys, the sun didn't rise this morning. The earth just rotated. But we all know what we mean. And everybody who heard Jesus say that knew what it meant. If dirt gets mixed in with the salt, it's no longer valuable. Guys, if the dirt gets mixed in, We lose our effectiveness. If the world gets in the way, we lose our effectiveness. And Jesus goes on in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father that's in heaven. So what do we got to do? Let it shine. Let it happen. Another song I'm going to sing, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Right? Remember that? And we didn't sing this little light of mine. I'm going to make it shine. I'm going to let it shine. You might be wondering if you're a new believer, if you've just come to the Lord in the last few weeks or months, you know, when can you start shining? (laughs) Shine as soon as you're lit. (laughs) You can shine right where you are. 
Because it's Jesus in you. Let your light shine before men. Guys, it's great to shine in here. Much better to shine out there. Not hidden, but where the world can see. We don't keep the salt in the shaker. It doesn't do any good until it gets out. See your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See your good works. Man, that takes a lot of planning and preparation, doesn't it? It's already done. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We need to just let it happen. Let it shine. Glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. What if we really believed that? What if we really believed that we're it? Guys, we are. We need to embrace that. He's looking, looking for those, just as he always has for those who will say, here I am, send me. Use me, Lord. Well, let's... Wrap up chapter 11, verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. He prophesied that a famine would come. The famine came in A.D. 45. Josephus said that that famine lasted three years and many people lost their lives because of it. When this was proclaimed, notice what happens. And in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution of the relief of the brethren living in Judea. So they heard about this problem that was going to happen, and it specifically hit hard in the region of Judea. They sent to help the cause. The Gentiles, filled with the Holy Spirit, sending relief and help. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Guys, I want you, let, let's stand up for a second. Well, not a second. We're going to stand up. We're going to close here. But I want you to, let's all, let's all just close our eyes for a second and reflect on the grace that God has shown you. Praise you, Lord Jesus, the grace that you've given to us. Now, all right, open your eyes and look around and marvel at the grace that God has extended to us. And like Barnabas, let's rejoice in that. Rejoice in the grace that God has poured out to us individually and corporately as a body. Guys, we're not perfect. Anyone? Okay, all right. Not perfect. Just want to make sure. We're all a work in progress, praise the Lord. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's simply a matter of going to him in your heart right now, repenting and turning. You can, you can join this. You can experience the grace that, that we've all experienced. You can, you can know your sins are forgiven right now. And I want to lead you in a prayer. So would you all close your eyes with me, bow your heads. Father, thank you for the gift that you've given us, the gift of grace that you continually pour out on us. If you're here today and you've never make, taken that step, You've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Go before him now in your heart and you just say, God, I am a sinner. 
And I don't want to carry this guilt anymore. I need a Savior. And Jesus, I believe you died to save me. I don't understand everything about this, but I understand that you took my guilt, that you took my punishment. So right now, would you come into my heart and wash my sin away? Give me everlasting life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that work of grace that you've done in each of us. And Lord, our desire now is that we just, we just worship you fully, that we rejoice in that grace. Lord, forgive us where we have oftentimes been resentful instead of rejoicing where we've protested instead of praised, where we've whined instead of worshiped. Lord, we put all of that away. And we worship you now and we thank you and we praise you for your grace. Is there